title I've given to tonight's study in Exodus is Israel's Salvation. Um, And we are going to do quite a bit of reading in the book of Exodus tonight um, because of what we're going to be covering, uh, two great events. So stick with me, please. Follow it uh, if you have your Bible. Uh, And I'm going to begin in Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11 and just the first verse at this point. Exodus 11 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Down now, please, to verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. Chapter 12. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old meals without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water but roasted over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord." The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now down to verse 29 of the same chapter, Exodus 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock as well. 
Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Now we go to Exodus chapter 14 and we're going to read from verse 5 to the end of the chapter. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he made his chariot ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Harioth, opposite Baal-Sephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. 
the Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved from the hands of the Egyptians, saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Amen. That was uh, quite, quite a reading. Um, to say that the book of Exodus presents a visual aid of salvation is not to downplay the reality or, or the importance of the original events narrated in the book of Exodus. Exodus is describing actual history. Israel really was saved from the judgment of God by their application of the blood of the Passover lambs. And Israel really did escape the tyranny of Pharaoh by their crossing of the Red Sea. Those events happened. But as our New Testament tells us, they also point to greater realities beyond themselves. They point us forward to the ultimate deliverance that you and I have come to experience through Jesus Christ. So tonight, we're going to consider those two seminal events which together comprised Israel's experience of salvation, the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. In many ways, when we come to the end of the plague judgments, and remember the plagues, strictly speaking, there's nine of them. But when we come then to the 10th plague, we're quite taken aback because up to this point, we think we know what Israel's problem is. In fact, it couldn't be more obvious the people were slaves of Pharaoh. And this cruelest of rulers, well, he presides over this system of unrelenting oppression. Pharaoh is Israel's most pressing problem and greatest threat. But when we come to the 10th and final strike we discover that Israel's greatest problem is not safety from Pharaoh, but is rather safety from the Lord himself. You see, Yahweh is coming to Egypt. The Lord of all the earth is coming to execute judgment on Pharaoh's realm. And Israel, every bit as much as Egypt, needs protection 
from the coming wrath of God. In reality, Israel had a double problem. It faced both the wrath of God and the tyranny of Pharaoh. But as we'll see tonight, God's salvation met both those needs perfectly, and it was all of his grace. It's possible that even as I say that, and as you contemplate Israel's situation and its double problem, that it resonates with you as a believer. You see, we also had a double problem. We were exposed to the wrath of God on account of our sin, and we too were captives in, in Satan's realm. But what God did for Israel through Moses, he has done for us in an an even more wonderful way through Jesus Christ. So we're going to think a little bit about the Passover and then the crossing of the Red Sea. And we'll see in both those saving events the most magnificent pointers to this so great salvation that we enjoy as Christians. I want to think about the Passover. I want to make four points or look at it under four headings. The first one is this, the judgment. Whilst the judgment of the death of the firstborn is truly terrifying, it is important that we see the appropriateness of this avoidable punishment that came upon Egypt. I touched on this last week. I think it's really important. You must remember that Egypt had adopted an official policy of genocide towards the sons of Israel, Exodus 1. And the Lord explained in chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, probably the most important verses in all of Exodus, that it would be as a result of Pharaoh's refusal to release God's firstborn, Israel, that God would in due time and after multiple warnings kill Pharaoh's firstborn. There is a correspondence between the punishment and the crime. But as I noted in my opening remarks, the Lord himself was coming to execute judgment on all of Pharaoh's realm. The Holy One was coming in person to execute his wrath. That's drawn out in chapter 11, verse 4, and in chapter 12, verse 12. I will come and do this. And that placed the firstborn sons of Israel every bit as much at risk as the firstborn sons of Egypt. 
There's something more, there's something greater happening now than in the previous nine plagues. This is the judgment when the Lord himself, the Holy One, will move through the land of Egypt. And that places every firstborn sinner at risk in absolute peril, whether they be Israelite or Egyptian. Second heading is the distinction, the judgment, the distinction. Up until this point, God unilaterally made a distinction between the Israelite population who were living in the land of Goshen and the Egyptians. And his disciplining blows were targeted at Pharaoh and his people. But this time, God demands that Israel and any others who would join themselves to them, that they must make the distinction themselves. God offered the means of protection from his wrath to any who would obey his word, but they must avail themselves of that provision. Each household should take a lamb, slaughter it at the appointed time, and apply its blood to the door frames of their house. This would be the means of distinguishing between those who would receive the wrath of God and those who would be spared from it. That simple. Wherever the blood was applied, the firstborn was safe. What did the blood applied to the doorposts of the house signify? The answer is this. Death has already come to this house. It's so important that we understand this. Death visited every home in Egypt that night. Either the firstborn died or the lamb died. One or the other. But God's sentence of death was carried out on all Egypt on Passover night. I hope your, your thinking is running ahead of you. Third heading, the substitute. For purposes of brevity, let me just highlight what I think are the two most striking features of the Passover sacrifice. The first is its necessary perfection. Each and every lamb slain, we're told, must be without defect. Nothing short of perfection will substitute for the firstborn and secure his deliverance. The second feature of the Passover sacrifice that stands out is its sufficient provision. Did you catch the instruction 
that a precise calculation was to be made in every home to ensure that each individual received enough to eat of the roast lamb. And surely our thoughts turn from the perfection and provision of those original Passover lambs to the ultimate lamb of God, the utterly sinless one who took upon himself the sins of the world and who fully meets the need of every sinner who trusts in him, who who feeds on him. Fourth heading, the response. God provided everything that the people needed to avert his wrath, but they had to respond in faith and obedience. Don't misunderstand the Passover, and I've heard this many times. No Israelite was saved because he was an Israelite. The only people who were saved were those who sought shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. The Lord who passed through the land of Egypt passed over every home where the blood was applied. But if you read the full account of the Passover, you'll notice that great stress is laid upon how the children of Israel were to eat the Passover. This too is non-negotiable. Chapter 12, verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Here's the point. Here are the terms of God's deliverance. Escaping his wrath and the decision to leave Egypt are intertwined. They are a package deal. There was no option of eating the Passover and escaping the wrath of God, but remaining in Egypt. God wasn't only delivering Israel from his wrath. He was claiming Israel for himself. There is no form of God's salvation which grants us forgiveness for our sin where we are unwilling to forsake our sin. And God underscored this truth in a symbolic way through the instructions he gave the Israelites as they prepared to leave Egypt. You will leave in haste and you will have no time to bake your bread. So take your unleavened bread with you. And God commanded Israel in the years that would follow to observe the feast of unleavened bread 
with the Passover. For seven days, Israel was to ensure that it was a leaven-free zone. No leaven was to be used in baking. Houses were to be swept clean. It became a powerful picture of lives that were to be cleansed of sin. So much so that when the Apostle Paul confronted the corruption that he found in the church at Corinth, this is what he said to them. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, the feast of unleavened bread, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What a picture of salvation the Passover gives us. And our minds are just overflowing with thoughts of Christ, by whose blood we have been saved from the wrath of God against our sin. But we understand the terms of God's salvation. We side with God's verdict upon our sin. We make the decision to quit Egypt and to be done with our sin. Our deliverance from the wrath of God is not an end in itself, leaving us to live any way we please, but is the beginning of a new life on the move with God. We are now his, for he has claimed us for himself. But you remember that I said that Israel had a double problem. Passover was God's provision for the first part. It protected, it shielded Israel from his wrath. But what about the second part of Israel's problem? The power of Pharaoh over them. Well, God's provision this time was to unite the people to their deliverer. And take them safely through the waters of judgment that would forever finish Pharaoh's rule over them. And as we consider Israel's crossing of the Red Sea, it will invite us to ask how is it that we as believers have been delivered from the dominion of Satan? And his power over us. And I'll say something under three headings this time. To do with the crossing of the Red Sea. Number one, God's glory. I think it's important to strike this note. When we are thinking about Israel's salvation and our own. We speak of our salvation. And of course it's quite proper to do so. 
But we must always remember that what has become our salvation is actually the Lord's salvation. It is his doing. And it is something he has done for his own glory that he has drawn us into. Listen to what the Lord says to Moses in chapter 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 18. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You see, Israel would play no part in this deliverance. Caught between the devil and the deep red sea. I owe that to Jim Crooks. Caught between the devil and the deep red sea. Israel would simply stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Israel will be spectators and not participants in this battle. The Lord will fight for them. So I say it again, what a tremendous picture of salvation as we see the Lord dealing with Pharaoh and his forces. But that invites us to think more carefully about Israel's deliverance, Israel's experience of salvation. How did it come about? My title list is, heading is, Israel's deliverance. If we simply follow the text of Exodus 14, we see that there were two elements in this particular phase of their salvation. God lured Pharaoh's forces into thinking that the Israelites had cluelessly hemmed themselves in. But then the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that accompanied Israel, the symbol of God's presence, it moved from its position in front of the people And took up a position behind them. Standing between the Israelites and the Egyptians. If Pharaoh and his forces were going to recapture Israel. And return the people to slavery. They would have to go through the Lord first. But next. God commanded Moses to raise his staff. And the waters of the Red Sea parted before him. The land was dried up overnight by a strong east wind. And the following morning, Israel was able to cross over on dry land. And when all Israel was safely on the other side, Moses raised his staff a second time And the waters closed over, engulfing the pursuing but stranded Egyptians. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Chapter 14, verse 30. 
Let me read you something that the Apostle Paul wrote as he thought about this aspect of Israel's salvation at the Red Sea. This is from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They certainly were. There was only one way that Israel was going to be freed from the power of Pharaoh who sought to return Israel to his service. Israel faced a binary choice. It was either Pharaoh or Moses. There was no third option. Either Israel returned to the dominion of Pharaoh or Israel surrendered to the captaincy and lordship of Moses. And Paul tells us that Israel experienced a kind of baptism. The people put their faith in their God-appointed deliverer and followed him safely through the waters and into their new life with God. I'm assuming that reminds you of something. For that is precisely what we have done as believers who have come to Christ for salvation. And it is pictured in our baptism. Once again, just as with Passover where the people could only be saved from the wrath of God if they decided to quit Egypt. So here, there is only deliverance from Pharaoh if the people surrendered to Moses and his lordship over them. There was no option of passing through the Red Sea and escaping the clutches of Pharaoh whilst reserving the right to do one's own thing. That deal was not on the table then, and it has never been on the table since. The terms of salvation are so clearly demonstrated in Christian baptism. Faith in Christ means death to self and a new life with Christ at the controls. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Third heading, Pharaoh's defeat. Isn't it interesting? Both Israel and Egypt did the same thing they both went into the Red Sea. But Israel went in with Moses, their savior, and they came out again. The Egyptians went in without a savior and never came out. There is only one way that sinners can face the judgment of God and survive. 
And that's if they do so with the Savior. But as Israel stood on the far side of the Red Sea, they knew that Pharaoh's power over them was broken forever. Pharaoh met defeat where Israel experienced salvation. That might remind you of somewhere else. Pharaoh's claims over Israel were as dead as the drowned bodies of his soldiers scattered on the shore. Pharaoh's rule was a thing of the past. Living for Egypt was a thing of the past. Israel was free to serve God and to live for him. I feel we've only been scratching the surface this evening. We've considered Israel's double problem. It's exposure to the wrath of God and it's bondage to Pharaoh. And we've seen God's gracious provision of salvation through the blood of the Passover lamb and through their baptism into Moses. And what spiritual realities it illuminates for us. We see our deliverance from the wrath of God and the guilt of our sin through the blood of Christ, the true Passover lamb. And we see our deliverance from the power of Satan and his rule over us through our faith union with Christ. Perhaps after this study, you will have a renewed sense of appreciation for those two Christian ordinances which celebrate our deliverance from the wrath of God and from the dominion of sin, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Observance of both ordinances is binding upon every sinner who has received God's salvation. But I want to finish with this. I want to leave you with a word about faith and assurance. Use your imagination and think with me for a moment about an ordinary, everyday Israelite. She has done precisely what God had said was required of her. She has obeyed his word and has followed the instructions to shelter in her home marked with the blood of the lamb. But as midnight approaches, her heart rate quickens, her throat turns dry, and her hands tremble. But tell me, when midnight comes, is she any less safe than other Israelites who have no such fears or concerns? Or come to the Red Sea and think again of an ordinary, everyday Israelite. He has done everything that God asked him to do. He has obeyed Moses' command and has followed him onto the ground that was formerly underwater. And as he follows Moses, 
He sees a wall of water on his left and a wall of water on his right and he feels his legs go weak and his knees almost buckle. Tell me, is he any less safe than the Israelite who goes striding past already humming the tune of the deliverance song that will be sung in Exodus 15? You know the answer. Our safety does not consist in the strength of our faith, but in the strength of the one in whom our faith is placed. All the people of God are secure in God's salvation for this reason alone. We have a powerful Savior. He has done the work. He has won the battle. And all the people of God said, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.